you saw the intro there, a group of people deciding to jump in a car and go on a road trip, a surf road trip together for fun, have a good time together. Um, you know, I, I love to do this kind of thing. Um, I love the beach. I, I don't feel like I get to go to the beach enough, but I love the beach. And uh, this past weekend, I got to go to Santa Monica with my family and just had a great time together with my kids, my wife, and just walked around. There's something about the beach for me that just really, uh, I don't know, I don't know what the word is. It's almost hard to put into words, but um, I grew up at the beach, and so there's just this, uh, it brings up a lot of memories. Um, but I usually like to go with other people to the beach. Um, sometimes I miss it so much that I, you know, I am tempted to just drive down there by myself. But there's not, it's not really smart necessarily to, to, for me to jump in the water, go surfing by myself in the early morning. I mean, people do it all the time, but I have memories of doing that as a, as a teenager. Um, and I would go before school, and I'd be out there as the sun was rising, and all I would think about as I'm floating on my board and paddling around was the Jaws song in my head, you know. And I'm thinking, this could go really bad, and nobody would even know about it. Because I grew up in a small beach town up in uh, Oceano. Well, Pismo Beach is the area that you might be familiar with, but... But ordinarily, I, I prefer now to go with groups of people. And so any chance I get, uh, I really do enjoy just road tripping it to the beach and having a good day. Uh, did, got, last weekend, got to go with some, some friends, and we had this long meeting after church and um, got this crazy idea like at 4 in the afternoon, let's go to the beach. And, and it was like 5.30 before we actually left and got down there at almost 7 and got in the water for about an hour and a half. And it was just... It was the best. It was, it was, it was so worth it. And uh, I wish you could have been there to experience it with us. And, uh, but launching this series to talk about this idea of just in life there are times when we just like to, we, we, you know, we move together or we jump into something together with other people and we decide, we, we make a commitment to do something in a group. Um, we're forming new groups and so this is somewhat of a, of a series to give some uh, framework for why we do small groups and the importance of that, you know, in, in a way it's the same idea of you're jumping in, you're making a commitment together and you're, you're doing something with a, another group of people, different personalities, different, uh, just mix of, of uh, gifts as far as abilities and talents and all of that. And so um, there's a lot of fears when you typically go on a, on a road trip or when you jump into something like a group. And so um, I want to address some of those things as they come up in the scripture in a book Ephesians, and so um, all of us, we have a choice on this matter. We all have a decision to make whether or not we're going to share our lives with others and, and you know, band together or group together and do something um, in life. Or the other option is we could just isolate ourselves so we can either invest deeply in relationships, build into people, involve ourselves in groups of other people, or we can just focus on our own self Maybe just our own family. And we all have this option in life. We don't have to take road trips with other people. We can just pretty much do life on our own. Um, and it's true, it's very difficult to, do, to make a commitment to do life in groups or to have relationships in life. Um, because relationships are rocky. Friendship can have friction. Marriages, all, all marriages hit tough spots. Um, and they, it, it, it's, there's seasons of, of difficulty in marriage. Um, if you're married, you know that. You know, in the early years, there might not have been a lot of pressure. But then, as you as you 
step into new stages, drop some kids in the mix, drop challenges at work in the mix. I mean, there's just all sorts of things that add pressure. Finances, the economy, you know, housing, all this stuff. It just Marriage can be very, very difficult. And sometimes it just seems, oh, it's just better if I just didn't do all the relationship things in life. If I just isolated myself, if I didn't, you know, really get close to other people, if I, if I you know, didn't band together with other friends, or if I shied away from relationships altogether, maybe that would just be better. And you heard the theme, that song that we were using, Better Together. It's just, it, it says it's better together. And, and I think sometimes the, the idea raises the question, is it really better together? Is, it, is life really better with other people? Because it seems sometimes that it would just be a whole lot easier if it was just me. And if I didn't have to get along with others, and if I didn't have to deal with their stuff and that, that stuff over there. And so I really want to address this question. Is it really worth it? Is it worth investing our lives in people and in relationships and in groups? God says this. This is in Ecclesiastes. We're actually going to look at a passage in Ephesians, but I want to start with this verse. God says that it is better. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. In other words, it's just more productive with other people. Life is it just it's more productive. We can get more done with other people. This is true. Projects can, you know, they're just much easier if you have other people involved. But it says in verse 10, if one falls down, his friend can help him up. There's support when we have other people in our life. Marriage relationships, that's added support. Friendships, that's added support. A neighbor, I mean, if you'll, if you'll be a good neighbor, that really can help you, you know. And it goes on, but pity the man who falls, you know, who gets tripped up in life, who falls down in life, and has no one to help him up. It gives you the idea that God is saying, you and I are incomplete on our own. There's, there's a part of us that is lacking, and only other people and relationships can fill the void in our life. There is, all of us have a need for relationships. It's, it's truly better. God says this is true. Even in the creation account, we read God, He's making, you know, our God, He made everything. He spoke everything into existence. He had these, these days of creation where He said, you know, let there be light, and there was light. And he, He's going through and creating, you know, all that we know and see. At the end of every day, what does He say? He says, God said, what? It was. Good. Yeah, he said, this is good. This is good. And then it's the end of the day. And the next day, he makes something else. And he looks at his creation and says, that's good. And then it, it gets to the sixth day. He makes man in his own image. He makes this statement about man. This is the first time God saw that something that he created was not good. It says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. God saw that there was a void in, in Adam's life, there was something missing. He was incomplete. And so God formed Eve out of Adam's rib and made her a helper or a compatible a counterpart for him so that there would be this completeness as they work together as one. Relationships give us an opportunity to get more done, to have support, and to be helped through rough times. We're, we're completed in relationships. Um, but God's ways, they are not supported by the world. And I think that's why the question is raised, is it really better? I have relationships that are, they have some funky tension. Or I have some relationships that are just rough right now. And we live in a more self-focused world. We live in a world where there's a very narcissistic culture that we lived in. And even the narcissistic, 
the me self-focused culture, it's found its way into the church. The church itself can, can become a very self-focused place where we step into the church and sometimes our thinking, you know, God wants this to be a community, but sometimes we step into church and we see it as, um, you know, kind of a, a store or a place that, that needs to meet my needs. And so we wrestle with this idea of I'm a consumer, I'm a customer here, and this church is here to meet my needs, to provide me what I want, to provide me the things that my family wants and what I need. And if it doesn't meet my needs, if they don't sell what I need here, or if they don't have what I need here, then I'm going to go look for a different place. That, that, the isolation ideas that are in our culture have really crept into our church. Now, I'm not saying into our church, but into the church in general. And I think even as we have started this church, you know, this is something we've had to wrestle with, this whole issue of are we going to be you know, putting things together in a way that's pleasing to God first and foremost, or are we going to put things together in a way that will attract people? And that's something we wrestle with because of the culture we live in. Now, God wants, we, we desire to, to please Him first and foremost, to know, love, and glorify Him. But again, this, this whole idea of community and consumerism is something that I think we, we all wrestle with. But it's God's desire that we would band together, that we'd learn to love each other within a community, within, within a church community, because the church is more than an organization. It's more than just a club like the Boy Scouts or, or your fitness club where you get all the benefits. But a church is something where we share, we support each other, just like in that passage talks about supporting and helping. That's what's to happen in the church. And in the Scripture, what God has done is He has laid out plans for how to relate and how to get the most out of our relationships. He's told us, this is how you can journey through life with others in a successful way. We find that in some different passages. One in particular is Ephesians chapter 4. We're going to look at Ephesians chapter 4 over the next three weeks. It's a passage in the New Testament written by a man named, named Paul. And Paul was a first century church starter. And this was one of the churches that he began, a place called Ephesus. He's writing this letter back to them to address some issues, to set some things in order so that they could have a healthy church. Um, But life, as we find it in this passage, is more than just a one-man journey. It's more like a road trip where we jump in, we join with others, and we're going to look at this together. Here's, Here's some of the road rules that God gives us in life. Before we open the Scripture, I'd actually like to pause and pray for a moment. And I'm going to also pray for some people that are dealing with some issues um, from within our church community. And um, you probably all are aware of some of the the accident that happened at Cal Baptist. Um, I think it's been almost two weeks now, two Mondays ago. And, um, you know, the driver of the accident, she's a cheerleading coach from Cal Baptist, she was killed. And then there was, I believe, five students that were injured in critical condition. Um, but I was told this morning that one of the families from our church actually has their friends uh, with, with a girl named Rebecca Troop, and she's one of the, the students that is still in critical condition, needing um, the brain um, tr- swelling to go down. And so I'd like to pray for her and just for her family. Also for the family of Wendy Rice, that's the cheerleading coach that, that passed away. Also, um, Taylor and Brittany, they're not here right now, I don't believe, but uh, Taylor's on staff at our church. His cl- one of his really close friends just passed away on Friday from a traumatic brain injury in a fall. And so just a lot of hurting, hurting people right now. And 
So I'd like us to pray together for, for them and as we before we begin this. Father, we thank you for an opportunity to join together in prayer and to lift up friends, brothers, sisters, people who are hurting and dealing with a lot of pain and trouble. And God, we know we are, we are living in a broken world and we all experience a certain amount of trouble because of the condition of our, of our world and our own lives, God. And we, we lift up uh, some of these different families to you. We pray for the family of Wendy Rice as she, um, she died recently. God, we pray for her husband and her kids who are grieving the loss of their um, mom, wife. And Lord, we, we just ask that you would um, heal and, and just they're brokenhearted over this. And so Lord, we pray that you would just bring comfort and Lord, that you would um, walk them through this in the days and months ahead. Lord, that you'd bring people around them from their church in Corona to just comfort them and to um, help them day by day as they're dealing with this, God. We lift up this girl, Rebecca Troop, and the other students who are still in um, you know, serious conditions um, scattered throughout our state, Lord. Um, just ask that you would um, work in her life, Lord. I, I, I understand that there's financial challenges as well with her. And just, Lord, I pray that um, you would provide all the resources that is needed for her family and for, for them as they walk through this just, you know, difficult, difficult time, Lord. And I pray for the surgeons that are involved. Just ask that you would watch over the surgery, Lord, that you would um, allow the swelling in her, her brain to decrease, Lord. And also for Taylor's friend um, who passed away, Brandon Pence, Lord, his family just is hurting. And but Lord, you've given him a real perspective about life and about where Brandon now is for the rest of eternity. Lord, thank you for his relationship with you. And um, But I pray for Taylor and Brittany and others that are hurting, family, God. Lord, thank you that when we walk through tragedy, you, you have not left us alone, but that you, um, that we're a part of a, a body, uh, your body, Lord, and that you allow us to care for each other and to pray for each other in times as these, Lord. We do lift these things up to you and these people up to you. We ask you to work in all their lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, Paul... In Ephesians chapter 4, if you'd like, you can turn there in your Bible. We'll also have the verses here and in your listening guide. Um, the first three chapters of this book lay out basically the benefits of what it means to be a Christian. If you've never decided to follow Christ with your life, um, what you get in chapters 1, 2, and 3 is you get... Basically, you, you are told in the Scriptures who you are in Christ. It gives you a picture of this is the inheritance you have, this is the life that you have, this is what you have to look forward to, this is what's yours already. And so in, in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, we're given this, this understanding of this is spiritually who you are. And then in, verse, in chapters 4, 5, and 6, the next three chapters, it's really a practical outworking of all of the first three chapters. first three chapters are all about theology, or it's about the doctrine of, of who we are in Christ. The next three chapters, is what do we do with all that information? How do we live that out? How does that make a difference in the way that we live our lives? And so he uses the phrase, as a prisoner, in the first verse, first, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, it says, as a prisoner for the Lord, he starts with the declaration of his own personal commitment. So take a look. It says, as a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling that you have received. Paul calls himself a prisoner. He starts with this. He says, as a prisoner, he's talking first person, you know, he's saying, I'm a prisoner in a sense. But he's mentioning 
and possibly reminding his readers that he was, in fact, in prison at the moment. He was in a Roman prison. He was confined, and he was still able to write letters to the churches to encourage. Um, but he, was, it, he didn't let his imprisonment hold him back from what he was doing. But the interesting thing about this phrase is I don't really think he was trying to rub in the fact that he was in prison. I think what he was doing was he was stating, this is, this is the way I look at my life. Paul was stating he sees himself or he saw himself as a prisoner of the Lord. Whether he was in jail or not, God had radically altered this man's life as an adult. He was going one way in his own life. This man, Paul, was living a life in opposition to God. He, in fact, was a Jewish leader who was trying to exterminate Christianity. And he was about to carry out some of those orders and his wishes to, dis- to exterminate some more Christians. He had papers with people's names on them. Heading, heading to do more damage to the church. And Jesus Christ appears to him on what's known as the Damascus Road. Has an encounter with Jesus and, and his life has radically changed. And some of you have experienced something like this where you were going your own way in life and then God just shook your life in a different direction and you turned like a 180 and began moving towards him in a different way. And in Acts chapter 9, you can read about that if you like to a different point, but you can see the conversion where he, he just had a big U-turn in his life. But from that point on, he saw himself as not a free man. He didn't see himself as someone who had, um, you know, who could make his life about whatever he wanted to. He, at that point, saw himself as a prisoner of the Lord. He saw himself individually as someone who was captive. This is, this is something that God wants us to catch. It is individually, you see this in your outline, we're to be captive to the Lord. Paul had a captive life. He was trusting and obeying God. We are not our own. If we've yielded our life to Jesus Christ, then you and I, we're prisoners of the Lord. And we have been, we have been called to live a worthy life. To live a different life. To live differently than the world. Our entire lives are to make a shift from ourselves. Like I said, we live in a very narcissistic culture where it's all about us and all about me. But God is trying to, to alter our thinking in this area. He's trying to help us understand that it's not just about us. Paul, and so he begins with this, we're talking about his own motives. His motives were Christ's. He's saying, I'm a prisoner to Christ. My motives are Christ. My standards are Christ. My objectives were Christ. He's saying, everything that I am, it, I, my allegiance is to Christ. His entire orientation, everything he dot, thought, planned, it was to please Jesus Christ. He was in the fullest sense a, a captive to the Lord. And because of our captivity, then, we're urged in this verse to live a life worthy of the calling that we've received. We looked at this around Christmas time, the importance of understanding what it means to live a worthy life. But Paul went to great lengths to not just share the message of the gospel, but he, he painfully labored to see others grow up. He didn't want people to remain immature in their faith. He didn't want them to be stagnant. He wanted to see people grow up. And so there's a sense in which if we have responded to God's call in our life, to a relationship with Him, He wants us to figure out what does it mean to live a worthy life. This, this whole word, worthy, it has the root meaning of, of scales, actually. The balancing of scales. What is on one side of a scale should, should match what's on the other. Things are to balance out in a scale in this sense. And what He's saying is our practical life, the way that we live our life, ought to balance out with what's true about us 
in our relationship to God. If we say we believe certain things, then our practical life should match our beliefs. There should be, that's the idea of worthy, is there's a balancing between the practical stuff and then the theological stuff, the beliefs. And sometimes we say, I really believe this stuff. I'm really fired up about this. And we get very invested in just knowing details about theology and information, but in all practice, our life does nothing different. We change nothing. God, you know, God's Word makes no impact on our lives. So we're, we're all heavy theologically and our life is just a big, big mess. And our life doesn't reflect... And this, this is the idea of a worthy life. To live a worthy life means that our theology ma- matches our practice. And that's truly a challenge. But he says this is the starting point. We're prisoners. Our life ought to match what we say. And then he shifts from the individual to the group as a whole. He says the Christian life is to be lived out in community. There's an implication here because look at what he gets to in verse 2. The stuff that he says ought to happen or the characteristics that we ought to have in our lives, these things only come up if we have to relate to other people. Humility, gentleness, all these things, we don't need those things if we all lived on an island. You know what I mean? Um, humility is not an issue if I live by myself on an island. But look what he says. He says, because of all the stuff, live a life worthy. Be completely humble, verse 2 says. And gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. This verse troubles me because the first or the second word kind of scares me. My wife and I were talking about this a few months back. It's a scary verse. Be completely humble and gentle. I'm like, well, I could be a little humble maybe today. But do I have to be all the day? He's saying, man, this ought to, this ought to be the way people see us. This humility ought to be something that defines who we are. But these are God's road rules. These four areas set in motion how relationships work over the long haul. This is how to enjoy relationships. The world may not have clear standards, but God has given us very clear standards. So first, corporately, we're to relate with boundaries. We're to, we're to have a set of guidelines or boundaries away, around the way that we live our lives, the way that we do family life, things at work, things with our friends. And these four characteristics build upon each other. So humility, it sets a foundation in our life for gentleness. Gentleness and humility together set a foundation for patience. And then those three set a foundation for learning how to bear with one another in love. These are things that build upon each other. But look at where he starts. He says we're to have humility, which is to think or judge with lowliness. To have a lowly mind. To to see ourselves in a sober sense. To see ourselves accurately to understand who we really are, not to have an inflated view of ourselves. In the days when this was written, the, Jew, or the Romans and the Greeks did not have a word for humility. It did, this word and this idea did not exist in their vocabulary because the Romans and the Greeks lived their life in a very different way. And so, apparently this Greek term was coined by Christians. This was a term... Humility was coined by Christians because there was nothing and there was no one living this way. Everyone lived for themselves. In fact, during the first several centuries of Christianity, non-Christian writers, they would borrow the term humility and they'd apply it to Christians because they wanted to slam them. It was a derogatory phrase written about Christians by non-Christian writers because this was a term of weakness, according to the Romans and the Greeks. To be a humble person, that was a weak thing. But look, this is what was modeled by Jesus himself. Look at Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8. Speaking of Jesus, it says, But he made himself nothing, 
That literally means He emptied Himself. This is the opposite of pride. Pride is when we're full of ourselves. When we make ourselves everything. Humility is the opposite. See, it says Jesus made Himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. That word servant actually means slave. There's different kinds of servants. But this word, it actually means a bond servant, One who has given up his rights to his master. He no longer has rights. That's the idea of humility. Jesus, is, he's, he's emptied himself of his rights, take the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in his appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Humility, it's an uncommon virtue. And in friendship, it is highly sought after. Wouldn't you agree? When you have a friend or a relationship with someone who's humble, who it's not all about them, it's not about, all about what they think and what they want to do, but they're willing to, to let others go first, aren't we just magnetically pulled towards them and drawn towards them? We want to spend more time with them because they're just, and they're refreshing to us. But humility, it's an uncommon virtue. And it is one that is to be highly sought in Scripture. It comes up all over the place. But it's never to be claimed. Because once you claim, I'm a humble person, you forfeit humility. <laughs> I had a friend who would joke about that. And she would say, I am so humble. And, and it, was, it was her joke because she, she understood that if, you, if you're talking about how humble you were, because at the college that I was a part of, this, sometimes people would toot their horn. And, uh, and so she was saying, yeah, you know, she was trying to imply the fact that as soon as you admit it, then you've lost it. But humility runs against the grain in our culture. We are all very proud of our society. In our society, of our, we're proud of our jobs. We're proud of our kids. We're proud of our accomplishments. And boasting about ourselves, it just comes so, so naturally. It just flows off our lips so beautifully to talk about ourselves. But pride in relationships, it, it just drives a wedge. And it chokes out the life in our relationships. Look at Proverbs 27 too. It says This gives us guidance on, on how to see ourselves. It says, let another praise you. Not your, own lip, not your own mouth. Someone else and not your own lips. When was the last time you bragged about somebody else as a way to build them up? When was the last time you just you focused the day and said, you know, I'm going I'm to make others look good. I'm going to make my coworkers look good before my boss. I'm going to make my friends look good. I'm going to encourage them. When was the last time we did that? You know, in our relationships, this verse really gives us the clue on how to be a refreshing friend. He says, let other people praise you. Another opportunity for humility comes up in comparison. Look at 2 Corinthians 10.12. It says, Paul says, he's talking about his own ministry and how comparison would come up in the church and is something we needed to avoid. It says this, we do not dare to classify or compare ourselves with, someone who, with some who commend themselves. When they measure themselves by themselves and compare themselves with themselves. They're not being wise. He's saying, comparison, we ought to avoid it. It's just a, it's an unwise thing to do. When we start looking at other people's lives, when we start looking at what other people have, and we start comparing and looking and just weighing out our lives, it's, it's a recipe for disaster because what creeps in is pride. We want to make ourselves look better and feel better, and so we, we might push ourselves up. Well, again, that drives a wedge. How, how do you grow in humility? I think there's two ways. Two ways. One is you choose to humble yourself. That's the first way. You choose to lower yourself. Humility is actually a choice where we take a lower position. 
intentionally. We decide to lower ourselves. We let someone else go ahead of us. But this is the least painful option, to just choose humility, to humble ourselves and lower ourselves. The more painful option is in Luke 18, 13, it says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. We can either choose humility, or if we lift ourselves up in pride, God himself will humble us. Humility will come. It's just a matter of... Um, it's just a matter of our, our, our of timing. And an interesting thing is, when we think about this verse, Luke eighteen thirteen, whoever humble or whoever exalts himself will be humbled. It gives us the picture of humiliation. Typically, if we exalt ourselves before others, we're humiliated before others. And so, that's a scary thought. But this area of humility is the is the the foundational piece of health in relationships. Letting others go first. Seeing ourselves accurately as God sees us. Look at the next area. The next area he talks about, you know, he says be completely humble and gentle. Gentleness is often thought of as a weak quality, again, but it actually means to exercise self-control. To, to just get, get control on our emotions. The opposite of this is to be vindictive or to, to be a person who takes vengeance on others. Um, this word was often used of wild animals that needed to be tamed. Like a lion that was tamed and under the control. It's a gentle lion. It's because it's under the control of its master. The lion tamer. He, you know, This lion still has a tremendous amount of power, but the tamer has somehow been able to you know, control this animal. And so it's doing what it's supposed to do. But gentleness and meekness in relationships... It helps us keep ourselves under control when we might get just when we might lose control when we're provoked. We need gentleness because we're provoked often. Look at Proverbs sixteen thirty two. It says, Better a patient man than a warrior. A man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. Just, you know, military leaders, they're trying to conquer cities. They're trying to, to be skilled warriors in warfare. But he, Proverbs is saying it's better to conquer ourselves. It's better to rule. The, the more effective leader is the one who rules himself, who conquers his own emotions. That's a greater virtue than even skill in warfare is what Proverbs is saying. In the Scripture, some men were skillful warriors, but they lacked the ability to control themselves to their own destruction. Samson was one of those men. Saul was one of those men. Skilled warriors... But they did not have gentleness. They didn't have meekness. They didn't have themselves under control. And it destroyed them eventually. But think of the instances just this week in your marriage or at work or with people in your life. Maybe people in church where it might have played out differently if you had chosen gentleness. Think about the arguments you had, the fights you might have had, the disagreements. And think about, man, I see where this went wrong. They provoked me. And I lashed out at them. I lost control of myself. Gentleness is reigning in the emotions, getting control over the way we feel. And that has a big difference on the culture of our community, of our relationships, of our church. If we lose our temper, we often use the excuse of, you know, I wouldn't have snapped at them if they hadn't ticked me off. You know, as long as everybody does exactly what they're supposed to do in this house then things are going to go well. But as soon as you step out of line, as soon as you lose your temper with me, then 
You know, then I'm free to do what I want to do here. And I mean, we, we, we put conditions on this whole area of gentleness. We qualify with, oh, I would be gentle, but everybody else around me is a jerk. And so, you know, or my boss, he's a hard guy to get along with. And so, well, a gentle person, he is able to rein in their emotions, keeping themselves under control regardless of the situation. That's a challenge. But that's the second area Paul says. Then he says, be completely gentle or humble and gentle. And then he says, patient. This next one is an outgrowth of humility and gentleness. He says, be patient, which is to be long-tempered, to have a very, very long fuse, or to, or to endure hardship. Patience is sometimes translated as meaning long-suffering. To suffer for a long time without getting out from under the pressure, to just deal with the pressures that come up in life and in relationships. The patient per- person, he endures negative circumstances for a very, very long time. Aristotle, he said that the greatest Greek virtue was refusal to tolerate any insult. So he thought that was a, was a good thing to just not deal with it when people mess with you. He said that's the greatest Greek virtue. But that's not what God wants for our relationships. He wants us to exercise patience. Listen to these instructions, 1 Thessalonians. And we urge you, brothers, it says, warn those who are idle, those who are irresponsible, in other words. Warn them. Encourage the timid, those people who are faint of heart, we're to encourage them. Help the weak. Those without strength, you need to help out. But be patient with everyone. This is a guideline that runs across circumstances, runs across relationships. Everyone that we relate to, we're going to have to exercise patience in relationships. It's not a, well, if they were a little more, if they were a little stronger, if they were a little, you know, not so irresponsible. He's saying, look, it doesn't matter. He says, this, is, this quality of patience is to be extended to all people. And some of you, you work for very difficult people. Some of you, your bosses are harsh. And the leadership you serve under, you work under, they're very, very difficult. And they're hard to get along with. And everything inside of you is screaming, I am going to blow up on them today. Patience is saying, you know, I'm, I have a long temper. I, I'm willing to endure and hang in there and trust the Lord. James 5.10, it's listed incorrectly in your outline, but James 5.10 it says, brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. He's saying, if, you, if you're struggling with patience, look at my prophets, God is saying. They had a pretty raw deal. When God called Jeremiah, he told the prophet, no one is going to believe you and you're going to be hated and persecuted. Go get him." And Jeremiah stayed faithful and patient amidst the circumstances. Isaiah, another prophet, when God called him to speak to his own people on his behalf, he said, Isaiah, no one is going to listen to you and no one is going to turn from their sins. Go get them. And Isaiah, he remained patient. He dealt with the, the, the persecution. He dealt with the stubbornness of people. So Paul makes this statement. You know, The last statement he makes about this whole road rules area and relationships, he says, be completely humble and gentle, be patient, bearing with one another in love. This last area of bearing with one another in love is learning how to love and love and love and love even when people are taking advantage, even when people seem to be, when it seems like we're getting ripped off. This is just learning how to bear with in real love. Real love, Scripture defines a different kind of love. It's called agape. Agape love is when we love continuously. 
It's very, very different than the kinds of love that we see in our world to where our, our emotions rule the way we treat others. Or, I'll love you if you love me back. And so a reciprocal love. Agape love, this kind of love that's being used here is saying, I will love you continuously. In marriage, I will love you even in the times when you're unlovable. I will love you when you say hurtful things to me. I will love you and continue to love you. I've made a commitment to you. There's a different quality about this kind of love of bearing with one another. First Peter says, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sin. What, what, it, what happens when we love people in relationships, it's like it throws a blanket over the sins. It's like it throws a blanket over the things that have hurt us and we can't, it, it doesn't allow us to be impacted by those things. And God Himself comes and strengthens us when we learn to love that way. This is the, these four things, these qualities, lead us to a place, lead us to a destination. Our destination, as we put these things on, we practice these things in our life, the destination we arrive at is unity. We find in, at the end of this verse, this verses 3 through 6, it says, Make every effort then to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So Paul is ending this. He's saying, look, you've got to be humble and gentle and patient. And you're going to bear with one another because these things lead to unity in the body. And unity is not just there for the sake of us, but unity is there in the church because God Himself is one. And He gives this big, this big uh, lecture on everything that is one. He states seven things that, God, that are important to God and that are, un- that are unified. But we have this tremendous opportunity in church and in relationships to join with other people who are very, very different than us and to reflect a unit, to, to reflect a oneness that makes God look good. And as you step into places and to relationships and into churches or settings where there's unity because people treat each other right, that, is, that has a magnetic pull. And other people want a little bit of that. And so my hope is that as we experience life differently, as we try to apply these things to our life, that it would draw other people to want to know God because that is what God is like. He is one. And as we work together to be one and rein ourselves in, it reflects Him. It makes Him look good. draws others to Him. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer as the band comes up and ask Him for the strength to apply this. Father, we, we love You. Thank You for Your Word. The things that, that You revealed in Your written Word have a timeless and universal impact. And God, our society may not see things in the same way, and our, our, our thinking may be very, very different. But Lord, You've set a very, very high standard for our lives. You want us to do life with other people. You've truly said it is better to do life together. And, and You've not only just you, you've encouraged us in that direction, but You've also set it, You've given us some boundaries so that we'd know how to, how to help relationships hang in there and to be a blessing, Lord. Help us, Lord, with our families, with our friends at work, Lord, and church life. I just pray that you give us the ability to choose humility and patience. And Lord, help us to choose gentleness and, and help us to bear with one another out of love. 
God, help us to choose this over and over and over again, God. And we, we know that we can't just muster up the strength to do these things on our own. So, Lord, all of us, we just ask You for the power to do this through Your Holy Spirit who's working within us, Lord. For those that have yet to make You boss of their lives, Lord, I pray that um, You would continue to uh, work out this process in them, Lord. That You'd continue to bring them to the point where they're ready to yield themselves to You and to allow You to, to lead their lives. We love You, God, and we thank You for speaking to us, God. In Jesus' name, Amen. On the back of your, or actually on the front of your outline, you'll see there's some next steps. Those correspond with the next steps that are in your connection card. And uh, encourage you to maybe apply this message in some way. First off, ask God to help me choose patience. Or just decide, on Monday, I'm going to praise or I'm going to encourage someone else this week. I'm going to try to put this into practice. I'm going to try to praise the people I work with. I'm going to try to praise my family members. I'm I'm going to try to put them first. Or ask a friend to hold me accountable in a specific area. Maybe you feel like you're really slipping up with your temper or you need to exercise gentleness. You know, you can ask someone for help in prayer in those areas. So if you would, um, you know, mark those things. We'll pray for you and drop those in the offering when that offering comes around in just a bit. And so let's continue in worship.